It percolates through all his thinking, damages his personality, makes him landlord to a ghost. Are you gripped by some sort of fear today? Are you landlord to a ghost? I want to talk a little bit about fear this morning because there seems to be a lot of fear out there. And there's a possibility there's a good amount of fear in here. You see, fear has been part of the human experience since the introduction of sin into the world. You remember reading in Genesis in chapter 3 and remember reading how Adam and Eve walked in perfect fellowship with God, but then they chose to rebel against God, and then God came to them, and what did Adam do? Adam hid. And when God asked him, where are you? He confessed that he hid because he was afraid. Turns out we humans have issues. Fear is one of them. It's something that we are prone to, and if that weren't the case, then the Bible wouldn't need some 300, some people argue as many as 365 derivatives of the commandment, do not be afraid, fear not. Christian counselor and author Ed Welch has written, to be human is to be afraid. And people are afraid of lots of things, aren't they? Afraid of the dark. Do you remember that when you were a kid? I do. That was one of the benefits of having a younger sister. I could send her into the dark. If anything got her, then I wouldn't go. People are afraid of the water. People are afraid of heights. People are afraid of needles. People are afraid of being alone. People are afraid of the unknown. People fear lots of things, but the psalmist here in Psalm 46 tells us why we can live and not be afraid. He says, God is our refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God is our refuge. The word literally means shelter. The word figuratively means place of hope. And the prophet Joel prophesied, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shake. But the Lord is a refuge. King James Version says the Lord will be the hope to his people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. A refuge is a place of protection, a place of safety from those things that pose danger and trouble. Verse 7 and verse 11 both take this idea of refuge even a little bit further, stating that God is our fortress. The root word for this word that we translate fortress comes from uh, the idea of a cliff or a, a high, lofty, inaccessible place, a place of safety, of great safety. As we read in the Bible, sometimes that God is a high tower. And you might wonder, well, what's the big deal about a high tower? You're thinking about a cell tower or a fire watch tower. And the scripture is describing God as a high tower, a place of great security where the enemy can't get in, where the enemy cannot find access. The idea is that obviously in God, who is our refuge, we are secure. We are protected. King David used that same imagery in Psalm 62. I have found reading through the Psalms these days, it's been a great uh, comfort to me. And I don't know if you found that same thing, but I would encourage you to read through uh, Psalms. In particular, Psalm 62 will bless you. 
Psalm 18, Psalm 56, Psalm 46, where we spent a couple of weeks. Psalm 62 and Psalm 46 are similar, and they both teach us how to live in tumultuous times without being shaken. And isn't that the kind of counsel that we need? How do we persevere in these uncertain times without being shaken to the core? God is our refuge, David says. He is also our strength, according to Psalm 46. And it's not just that God gives us strength. He does that from time to time. And the Bible's full of examples where God has given us strength. But in this particular place, the psalmist says God is our strength. That I find particularly comforting, especially as I come to realize my own limitations. And I have found that I am realizing my own limitations with greater frequency as I get older. And some of you know what that's about. And others of you, are, well, you will. We can only ever do so much, right? In fact, it seems there comes a time, and that can be very frustrating, when we do less and less. But God isn't like us in that way. God is not limited the same way that we are. Imagine being a citizen of Jerusalem under attack by a mighty enemy, which I think is the context for Psalm 46. And after you take inventory of the forces that are coming against you and you take inventory of the forces you have within your city walls, you know that by the numbers, you do not have enough troops. You cannot hold off this enemy. You don't have enough force to prevail. If you came to that conclusion as you're in the city of Jerusalem, that would lead you to great despair, wouldn't it? That would lead you to become hopeless if God were not on your side. And that's the difference. But because God is on your side, because you are a citizen of heaven, because you are a child of God, you are not confined to only the results that you can produce. You see, as children, we are, are recipients of, we are beneficiaries of, we are even conduits of the strength of God. As children of God, these things are ours. So, listen, we don't have to be strong. We spend a lot of time trying to be strong, and we also spend a lot of resources trying to convey an image that we are strong. But we don't have to be strong, and we don't have to pretend to be strong, because God is strong. And God is strong for us. Which, I think, gives new meaning to those places of weakness and vulnerability in us that we often despise. No one wants to be weak, no one wants to be vulnerable, no one wants to feel inadequate or empty or unable to do anything, but you do understand, don't you, beloved, that those are the places where when we come to them, if we yield to God, he's able to shine. This is where God steps in and gets the glory. That's what the Apostle Paul was learning. That's what God was teaching him. When he asked God three times to remove something, an affliction. We don't even know the exact nature of it, but he called it a thorn in his flesh. And he asked God, he kept going to God in prayer to remove it, but what, what did God say to him? God said, no. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. So it might pain us to say something like, well, I just can't do this, or I can't do this anymore. I can't do what I used to. Understand that that is the perfect starting point for God to do something amazing. When you don't have the energy and you don't have the will and you don't have the desire and you don't have the skill, that is exactly where God steps in to do something amazing. Time and time again we have read in the Old Testament of a diminutive little people called the Israelites 
who were victorious in battle after battle, not because of any might of their own, but simply because of their God and His strength. He is, after all, the one who speaks and melts the earth. You did catch that, right, in the Scripture. He speaks and melts the earth. I mean, there's a lot of talk going on these days. There's a lot of chatter out there, but the words of men never compare to the Word of God. When He speaks, it happens. He is the one who breaks the bows. He is the one who shatters the spear. He is the one who burns the chariots with fire. He is the one who is all-powerful, who holds it all in His hands. He is strong. He is mighty. He is able. God is our shelter, the psalmist said. God is our strength, and God is a very present help in trouble. This particular uh, way the psalmist words it here interests me because psalms are poems. Poems have rhythms. Poems have, have syntax. Uh, they have balance, actually. If you study them, you see. And so it would have made more sense, I think, for him to say, God is our refuge, God is our strength, God is our help. Boom, boom, boom. One, two, three. Makes sense. But that's not what he does. God is our shelter, God is our strength, God is our very present help. Not only is he a help, he's a present help. Not only is he a present help, he's a very present help. But a lot of emphasis going on here. Why? Because the psalmist doesn't want us to miss this very fact. God is with us in the midst of our struggle. God is here, God is with us now. That's what the psalmist wants us to know. In fact, it is a refrain of this psalm, is it not? The Lord of hosts is with us. And we can drill down a little bit further there and make this a little bit more personal. Today, God is with you. Why do we need to hear this? And why, does it, why is it repeated so often in Scripture? Because we are inclined at times, and I think particularly in times of unease or trouble or uncertainty, to wonder if God is still here. Does He still care? Is He still present? And the psalmist is saying, if you, don't want to be, if you don't want to fear, you have to understand God is a very present help in trouble. And trouble, by the way, is the natural human condition. Since Eden, it's like it doesn't have to be that special. We're always in trouble. We are. We're always in trouble. Almost always stuck between one rock and one hard place. And God is present with us in those moments. He is with us. We do live in a world... As Martin Luther said and penned in his famous uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, filled with devils that threaten to undo us. It doesn't take any work at all for us to look around and see a threat, to see a danger, to understand that we could be in peril. There are reasons to be afraid, reasonable reasons to be afraid, but there always remains this one overarching, overriding, overall reason not to fear and that is the presence of God with his children. Something that will never, can never be taken away. God is with you. Believe that today. He is our refuge. He is our strength. And he is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. We especially do not have to fear what so many seem to be afraid of these days. And that is the prospect of death. I know there's plenty of other sources of fear out there. I know there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty on many fronts. I understand no one wants to get sick. No one wants to suffer. But those, in my opinion, are not the real worries. The real worry confronting so many today is the idea of dying. 
And it, it's the idea of dying that has a lot of people on edge. The fear of death, by the way, is probably the most common of all fears, isn't it? Samuel Taylor Coleridge in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner writes about death, about how we know it's coming, about how we might even give it a glance, but we don't want to look at it. We don't want to face it. He says, like one on that lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round, walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. We know it's coming, we turn once, and we walk straight, and we don't look at it again. Why? Because there's a frightful fiend behind us. And I think it is the steps of this frightful fiend that's responsible for a lot of the contortions that we're putting ourselves through, a lot of the disruptions that we may even be putting our own selves through. But listen, God doesn't want us to be anxious. He has, in fact, provided the way for us to be liberated. Now... I love to read the scripture, and I suspect you do too, and I hope it you know, makes you, heartens you a little to know that you have a pastor who, who loves to read scripture. Um, and I better, I ought to. But one of the things that I enjoy so much about reading the Bible is how frequently, after all these years, having studied it for so long, how frequently I come across things that seem new. I can have read a book 10, 20, 30 times, and I can still open that page and see something that I didn't see. And I wonder, was that, has that been here the whole time? Because I never saw it there before, or it never jumped out the way that it did. And recently I've been reading through the book of Hebrews. And in the second chapter of Hebrews, it was another one of these experiences. I come across just a verse, and I'm like, wow, that's been in there the whole time. So I want to read that to you, and pardon me because we're jumping in the middle of an argument, but I know that you're gonna, I know you're going to follow it. Okay, Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that Jesus became a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death can own a person if he or she doesn't find a way to come out from under it. But in Christ, we have the way out from under the fear of death. Because Jesus came into this world, we know it literally, to be with his creation. Emmanuel, God with us. And he came to do what we cannot do, which is namely to live that sinless life. And when he did that, he was able to present himself as, as the substitute for our sins on the cross, to become a sacrifice for our sins, because our sins deserve our death. But Jesus never sinned and didn't deserve death. He never earned punishment like that, but he paid our debt of sin with his own life on the cross and he was buried because he was killed on the cross and he was buried and three days later the scripture teaches he rose from the dead by the way he tried to tell people that this was what was going to happen and nobody bought it nobody believed it nobody could get their heads around it but Jesus said he was going to overtake death that he was going to rise and he did and his resurrection is proof that death has been conquered this is what the Bible declares death has been conquered 
Death does not have the final word. Death is no longer to be feared. Death does not have its sting. It doesn't. It's not supposed to, right? Jesus passed through death into life so that you and I can do the same thing. You and I who believe in him, who put our trust in him, who receive him. And so he has delivered those who believe forever from slavery to the fear of death. So if by some chance you have found yourself caught up in the hype these days, worried about getting sick, worried about dying, I'd just like you to back up just a second and remember whose you are. You are not your own. You have been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are a child of God and he has his eyes on you. Remember whose you are. Remember what the scripture teaches about your life. That, that, that your very days have been ordained from the beginning. Remember the words of your Savior who said, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. When the Apostle Paul was thinking about death, he was torn in his feelings. You read about this in the book of Philippians. He was torn on this idea whether he should stay and work for Jesus or if he should want to go and be with uh, uh, God in heaven. Uh, and he kind of came to the conclusion, as I read it, that he really couldn't lose. Because he said this, you may recall this, for me to live is Christ and to die is, is what? Gain. Gain. To die, listen, to die is gain. Where are, you, where are you hearing that on the news today? Where, where does that message fit in to what's going on in our society? To die is gain if you are a believer in Jesus. Now, I don't want to be misheard. It's easy to be misunderstood. I am not suggesting today that you should be careless in a pandemic. I'm not saying that you should be reckless. I don't think you should be cavalier. I, I'm just saying that as believers, when it comes to death, we should have a scriptural view of it. That's all I'm advocating for. I have no trouble with anybody who enjoys this life, this gift of God, which is meant to be enjoyed and wants to preserve it. Go ahead, do everything you have to do to preserve that. But understand what death is from a scriptural standpoint. It was a Greek philosopher, Epictetus, who said, men are not afraid of things, but how they view them. And so how we view things has to be informed by the scripture. Don't you agree? If we view death scripturally, we've got no reason to fear. Because whenever it comes, and it's coming, and we know that, we may not glance backward at it, the rhyme of the ancient mirror, but it's coming, it's behind us, it's okay. Whenever it comes, it's gain. 
It is not loss for those who trust in Christ. And that's why the psalmist can say, therefore, we will not fear. This fearlessness, by the way, serves a purpose. It is not just for our well-being. Although, admittedly, it's, it's a lot nicer to have a settledness, a peace in life, than it is to be fretful about everything and run around being constantly anxious and worried. So, for sure, there's a benefit to being fearless, but there's also, there's also another purpose. Fearlessness is a witness. Fearlessness is a witness to those around us who are stressing and who are straining, who are under the illusion that they are responsible for their next breath, for every, everything that they want. They, they have to acquire everything that they want, or they have to protect everything they have. It's to put a lot of pressure on themselves to get stuff and to keep stuff and to hold stuff. Living without fear is a witness to these people that we have something in the form of faith that is worth having, that makes a difference, that we have something, and one might be perhaps more correct to say someone, who truly informs our perspectives, our decisions, our attitudes, our choices, and makes our life better, something and someone that they might want to have too when they see it and they see him in us. So fearlessness isn't just for you. It's to bring calm to those who are around you and to be a witness to them of why you can be steady, why you can be tranquil in a time of tumult, how you can live and not be shaken. I know that we live in uncertain times. I get it. I, I know that... that these are strange and odd and, and scary times. And I do understand the bent toward anxiety and worry. And the last thing I would want to do in preaching about anything like this is heap, heap something on your back, you know, and make you feel guilty about, oh, I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that. What I'm saying is you don't have to worry. But I do understand that bent. Doesn't, don't we all really? I mean, most people do have to fight this on a fairly regular basis. We have to turn to the Lord when we feel, as Mike said, we feel that fear, that oppression coming on us. How quickly do we turn to the Lord to get rid of it? Very often, I don't know if you're like me, I carried it around a little too long. It could develop into something, right? As I started out, that damages my personality. I could be landlord to a ghost. I don't need to be. I can cast my cares on God. So I just want to encourage you today because of what the scripture declares to be true. To live in faith to live out your faith, and to not be afraid. Trust in God. Seriously, trust in God. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. This is why we can trust in God. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear.